draw near to your son, Jesus. And I pray, God, that as we open your word and we hear your word, that your spirit would move among us and that today would not be just something we check off the list, but it would be an important time in our lives, a critical time in our lives where we come and we sit in humility under the word of the Lord, under the preaching of your word and your commands and your truth, God. We pray that it would change our lives this morning. God, we want to pray for those that are sick. We want to pray for those that are unable to be here today, God, for whatever reason. And God, we pray that you would do a work among us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So to recap what we've been looking at this Advent season, month of December, these four services that we've had, we don't always have Christmas trees on our stage. Some of you would like that, most likely. But we've been uh, looking at this passage in Isaiah. This prophecy spoken by the great prophet many hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. He spoke, Isaiah did, of a coming king with four titles or descriptions. And we've been looking at each of them over the last three weeks. This king of kings, he was born into the world to Mary and Joseph. And it's told that he would be of the family of David, King David from the Old Testament, that according to verse 7, which we're going to read in a moment, he fulfills the scripture by making the rule of the Davidic line of kings eternal with his eternal reign as king. God made King David a promise and he said, your throne will last forever. And so when it stopped, I'm sure a lot of people lost hope and they said, what has happened to that promise, God? But Jesus. Jesus has come, and because he is of the line, the family line of David, and he will reign eternally as a king. Isaiah speaks to this, and he speaks to God fulfilling this covenant, this promise to King David in the Old Testament. And so through Isaiah's lens, we've looked at Jesus, who the first time came to a little town of Bethlehem. And one day we know he's going to come again. We've looked at him as a wonderful counselor. We've looked at him as an a mighty God, we've looked at him as everlasting Father, and this morning we'll look at him as Prince of Peace. And we've received some excellent application of these titles from Pastor Adam over the last three weeks. These, these titles, these descriptions, y'all listen, it's just like they say, the, the, the Bible is so shallow that a baby can sit in it, but it's so deep that you can't touch the bottom. These titles, these descriptions of our Lord Jesus are so deep. They are an unending well from which we can draw inspiration and light and truth and closeness to God. And so God has a word of hope for us today, 2016, December 5th, uh, December 25th. We're celebrating his birthday, but my prayer is that your heart and your mind would be lifted up in worship. King Jesus this morning. This morning, as we observe that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to read more of the passage because context is important. It's so important to get the fuller context of this passage. Your context is the environment in which the story takes place. It's your environment where your words are. We don't like context in our culture. A lot of times. You know what we like? We like t-shirts. We like slogans. We like cliches. We like tweets. 
Sometimes you need the fuller context. How many of you raise your hands? Have you ever been misinterpreted by a text message you sent? Okay, I know there's more than that. Come on. Come on. If you text, you've been misinterpreted. Maybe you don't know that you've been misinterpreted, but it's happened to me many, many times, and that's because you need the fuller context. You need the facial expression. You need the tone. But so often we get, we get, we get in a hurry and we do this, and this is happening to all of Christianity. We... We're trying to, it's happening to our world and our culture, and we're, we want to take stuff in little bite-sized pieces, but sometimes we need to take a step back and we need to look at the context. I'll never forget the time I went into, uh, a little love this, I think I mentioned this before, I went into uh, the Hendricks University gymnasium, and up there was a banner that said, be ready in season and out of season. You know, as if that was talking about sports, it's not talking about sports, it's talking about defending the gospel. And here we are, we're using this little bite-sized piece of the Bible to make it fit our own interpretation. That's not at all how the authors or how God wants us to take it. We have to look at the context. So, open again to Isaiah. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 in their entirety. And this should be on the screen if you don't have the Bible. Isaiah writes, But there will be no gloom for her who was an angel, speaking of Israel. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way by the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of his increase, or of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, for this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's still beautiful. It's still a beautiful passage, but it certainly doesn't have that cute and cuddly sound that it did when we just looked at verse 6. There's talk of warriors' boots, garments rolled in blood in the lands of deep darkness. How would that look on your Christmas sweater? Right? It's okay to put wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace on your Christmas sweater. Wait, you start putting garments rolled in blood. Start getting, look, getting some looks from people. No, it's still a beautiful passage. But why the mention of all this? It's because it helps us to understand what peace here really means. What does it mean? We take that word for granted. We throw it around just like a lot of words that we use. It's so important. So often in our American Christian culture, when we hear the word peace, it's usually, many times, used to refer to an emotional calmness. 
rest, relaxation, tranquility. I feel at peace. Sometimes it's used to, to refer to having confidence or, or assurance about a decision that we have to make or have made. You might hear somebody give this phrase out. They might say, God's given me a peace about it. All right? He's given me a peace. People might use that kind of wording when they arrive at a decision about a career move. We're at peace about it. But that's not the kind of peace Isaiah is talking about. Nor is it the kind of peace that is most mentioned in the Bible. Does God give emotional comfort in the midst of turmoil? Absolutely. Can he give confidence and take away fear and anxiety about a circumstance or a decision that has to be made? Absolutely. But I want to tell you this, just as a side note. Sometimes God calls us to do stuff that is scary. Sometimes we have to take a step in faith. Like when we want to share the gospel with a co-worker or a family member. Or when we have to take a stand against some kind of evil, sometimes you will receive no emotional calm over that. You will know that it's right, but you won't be at that kind of peace and comfort over it. Sometimes God calls us to things that challenge us, that scare us. Sometimes He will give us an amazing confidence in those moments. But sometimes on the road, as we mature and as we trust it more, sometimes it is so scary to take that first step of faith and obedience to God. And so that kind of peace is not the peace that Isaiah is speaking of here. It's not at its root emotional or mental. It's relational. Relational peace. You know, that thing you want when all of the opinions, the political opinions and the cultural opinions of your extended family come together around Christmas time, right? That's when you want relational peace. Amen? You ever heard people say, I just hope we don't have anybody get in an argument this Christmas. If you have, it's okay. God forgives, God restores. Have an amazing Christmas time. It's not always like it is in the movies. It very rarely is. But the kind of peace that Isaiah is talking about is a relational peace, a, a peace between people. It's a wholeness or a well-being of relationships, relationships between individuals, between nations, and most importantly, between God and man. Jared spoke a little bit about that earlier. And this definition of peace is easy to see when you read the context of the passage, when you read the history of the Hebrew people, when you realize that their ideas for peace and their longings for peace weren't about feeling confident with a career decision or which house to buy. With them, it was mainly about the wars around them to stop and the people around them to stop warring and the wars within and among them to stop for them to be in a right relationship with God. For them, peace was that war could stop and that relational wholeness, purity, perfection, and joy would be present. Isaiah was a spokesman for God during the reigns of righteous kings like Hezekiah and wicked kings like Ahaz in the kingdom of Judah. The twelve tribes of Israel, 
children of Jacob, and millions of them, they were divided for some time at this point into a northern kingdom called Israel, where the majority of the tribes were, and a southern kingdom called Judah. That's where Jerusalem was. It was a time similar to what we see right now in the Middle East. In fact, it probably was worse. It was a time when there was war all around. There was war between nations on the outside, pagan nations, heathen nations. There was war inside. There was civil war even between the, the, the tribes of Israel. And then you had the world power of Assyria. The world power of Assyria. With their great pagan leader, he was invading the northern tribes. And that's what he was talking about. He had really, he had really wreaked havoc on the, the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. He had a campaign going through this northern tribe, and eventually he would conquer them completely, and he would take them into captivity. And it would be years later when Babylon would take over, and they would take the southern kingdom of Judah. They would take many of them into captivity. Isaiah had to deal with kings like Ahaz. Ahaz was so wicked, he even sacrificed his own children. These are supposed to be the people of God. And Isaiah had to deal with this man. And sadly, this was not an exception. This was the norm. Even within the nation, within the northern tribes, and within the southern tribes, within the kingdoms. And because of their great wickedness, sometimes God would use these pagan nations to come in and hammer them. Just to wake them up. And say, what are you doing? What do I have to do to get your attention? And that's what he was doing with Assyria this time. And yet we see God as a constant pursuer. Even when they wouldn't listen, which was much of the time, even after these nations came in and almost wiped them out, the people were still rebellious sheep going astray. And yet God was the constant pursuer and rescuer and helper and healer of His people. He never turned His back on them. He was always calling on them Come, oh, the patience and the long-suffering and the love of God. So in this war-torn time and region, this hopeful prophecy of Isaiah gives, this prophecy that he gives to the people, it's about a king that will bring great peace, relational peace, military peace, civil peace, governmental peace, national peace. Peace. All four of these titles, these descriptions, they have to do with the guy's military ability, with his governing ability. Kings would have counselors that would give them wisdom as to what strategy they had to use in, in battle with the people. Mighty God speaks to his power and his ability in battle to conquer his enemies. Everlasting Father speaks to his, his, his ability to have a reign that will be eternal. So many of these kings would come and they would go and it was just a flip-flop all the time and such a free agency deal with these kingdoms so they could never get a pattern of righteousness and peace going that Jesus will. And not only that, it talks about his ability to bring peace. The government will be upon his shoulders. And the defining result is peace. The peace. Friends, can you imagine a world today 
for real peace. We get lulled sometimes. We have so many good things here. I don't know what the world's going to look like in the future. Some say it's going to get better. Some say it's going to get worse. Some say it's going to go through a pattern of up and down. I don't know. All I know is that right now, there's not peace in the world. There are millions of children being murdered every day in their mother's wombs all across this globe. There are wars, rumors of wars. There's terrorism. There's battles of religion and threats of nuclear warfare and on and on. What would a world look like where nations didn't war and fight, where individuals within the nations never stole or lied or injured one another? No locking cars or houses, no safes in your homes, no worry about your children's safety or their future, not an ounce of concern over radical jihadists or nuclear warfare. You won't even need weapons. I love that even, even in the end, we may read it later, even in the end when Jesus comes to confront his enemies and he's got his army behind him, this army doesn't even need weapons because the lamb is the one that conquers the sharp two-edged sword in his right What would it look like to have that peace? Peace is having perfect harmony in our relationships. Jesus has earned the victory of eternal peace. This is our hope. He's earned it through the triumph of his cross and his resurrection and his coming again. It is coming again. And so I want to show you two ways that he applies his peace here this morning. These are reasons that you and I should have for hope and confidence and great joy in King Jesus. First, I want you to picture the two hands of Jesus. The hands, I have a little baby at home. I spoke about this earlier in the week with the group. I love his little hands. His little hands and those little fingers that can fit on my big finger. There's nothing more precious than seeing those baby hands. And Jesus had those hands at one point. But then one day he stretched out those hands when he was a man and he took upon himself nails into those hands. He bled and he suffered and he died. And so if you would use the illustration of the two hands of Jesus this morning, I want to talk to you first about his hand of sovereignty. Jesus brings peace to the world and he will bring peace to the world ultimately with his hand of sovereignty. Sovereignty is his authority. Sovereignty is his power. Sovereignty is his might, his complete control over all things. Jesus is sovereign. And he will bring peace through his Sovereignty and through his rule and reign. Jesus is always working behind the scenes. God is always working behind our rulers and, and in our laws and in world events. But one day he's going to take direct control of things. And so we as Christians, as his followers, we exist now as a forerunner of this kingdom coming. And we are to be influencers in our world of the political and the cultural we're to pray for revivals in our homes and in our church and in our communities and in our nation and in our world. But our ultimate hope, hear me, Adam talks about this a lot. And I love that he does. We should absolutely be politically engaged and culturally engaged, but our ultimate hope cannot be a political party. And it cannot be a nation great as this nation is, 
or even groups of nations to fix this world and bring peace. Only Jesus Christ has conquered and will conquer the enemies of peace. Amen? Amen. Only Jesus. He is our only hope. Speaking of his enemies, in Genesis chapter 3, we are told that Jesus will crush the head of his enemy, Satan. He will crush the head of the serpent. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus travels into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the current ruler of this world, Jesus, and he utterly defeats the devil. He triumphs over the temptations of the devil. And it is at that moment when he comes out of the wilderness after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and of spiritual battle with the devil that he begins to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He had begun to overthrow Satan. He had taken over. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, this is on your screen, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews 10, 13 says that Jesus is now waiting until time is fulfilled and his enemies become a footstool for his feet. And on that day when Jesus Christ finally returns, we're given a picture in Revelation 19 of this. I spoke of this earlier. It says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Is that going to be you? Are you going to be in that number? From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he has earned this kingship. John, the revelator, tells us, and he sees the vision. He says, I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll in heaven with writing on the inside and on the back. He was sealed with seven seals. And I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? But no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I cried and cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Look, the lion." And the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious, so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Paul tells us that he humbled himself, Jesus did, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Would you do that? For this reason, God has also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus Christ, every name should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day where every knee, regardless of whether their heart is bowed to them, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ, and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. They will either do it willingly, or they will do it unwillingly. 
But there will be no denying the truth that he is Lord of all. This is not exactly the helpless and sweet baby that many see in the manger at Christmas. Babies are sweet, aren't they? Got one at home next week. You start to doubt that when they keep you up all night. But they're sweet. And there are some things that we can see in that baby, no doubt. But we have to keep in mind that Jesus isn't just sweet. He's sovereign. And let it be a lesson to us today that we always need to correct and connect his crib with his cross and with his crown. Jesus will bring everlasting peace one day to this world. He will do it through the great power and might that he possesses. He will do it through his justice and his wisdom. He will conquer all the enemies of peace. And we, brothers and sisters, we should look forward to this. We should look forward with great expectation for the kingdom of King Jesus to come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Anybody that says, there's an old country song that talks about not wanting to go to heaven just yet. Anybody that says, I just hope Jesus doesn't come back right now, having such a good time in this world is a fool. My friends, one of the things that we need to pray for is for Jesus to come back as soon as possible. We don't know when that's going to be. But Lord Jesus, come. Come and put an end to this Suffering, come and put an end to this evil. Come and bring your kingdom so that there would be peace. He brings peace into the world through his hand of sovereignty, but he also brings peace into human lives and into your life and countless others. Through a hand of surgery. A hand of surgery, that's an odd word for me to use. It's not necessarily a word that we use in theological terms. But it's very applicable. Some of you in this room today, many of you, literally had your physical lives saved through the hands of a doctor performing surgery on your body to remove or fix something that was broken within you. You've had cancers removed, or perhaps even a transplant of an organ. How amazing that we live in a, a day where a life can be saved through a heart transplant, for instance. And so I use this illustration this morning because there are diseases and cancers and failing organs in our physical bodies that cannot be fixed by our exercise, or by our diet, or by any work or willpower that you or I possess. The only thing that can cure some of these things is a doctor and the work of a doctor who knows how to perform the surgery that is necessary to save your life. And so you see the parallel here. The disease of sin within us has brought death to our lives. God tells us that the wages of sin is death. Your sin, my sin, is death. It's punishment. Not life. It's what we've earned. Our sinfulness has destroyed our connection. It has destroyed our peace with God. Paul says in his letter to Ephesians, that we are dead in our sins and that we are children of God's wrath, His enemies. Because He is holy, and pure, and perfect, and sinless, and we are not. He created us in His image. He created us to reflect Him. But we've taken that worth and that value that He gave us 
That light that we're supposed to shine into the world. Reflecting Him, we've taken that and we've rebelled against Him. So how much more do we deserve to be condemned? We're not trees. We're not animals. We're made in the image of God. We're supposed to be reflected. And so in our sin, in our sinful state, we don't know Jesus. We're His enemies. But Jesus. I love that. But Jesus. You can take any problem in the world and you can say, but Jesus. I've got cancer. But Jesus. All my marriage is in trouble. But Jesus. All my job, I'm stressed out at work. But Jesus. It may not mean as the prosperity gospel preachers would tell you that everything's going to be perfect and rosy and hunky-dory and you're going to make lots of money. You're going to have wealth, health, wealth, and prosperity. But you can get through it the way Jesus wants you to get through it. You can have him by your side. But Jesus, Jesus is the great physician. And so with one hand, he is a conqueror. With the other hand, he's a healer. And God, in speaking to his people Israel, through Ezekiel, the prophet said this to his people. He said, I will give you a new heart. Heart transplant. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Then you will live in the land that I gave your fathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. This isn't willpower. This isn't empty religion. This isn't you working to try to make yourself better. This is God giving you a heart transplant. This is God changing you from the inside out. This is God doing something in you that is supernatural that you couldn't in a million years even hope to do. That's the amazing truth of the gospel. Jesus makes us new creations. He gives us a new heart. He makes us alive to God. He gives us peace with God. Colossians 2.13 And when you were dead in trespasses, read this on the screen. And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses, our sins. When Jesus went to the cross, he made a payment for sin. A payment. Something happened there. It's not just a beautiful symbol. It's a transaction. It's a payment. He poured out something. He took something upon himself. Something beyond the physical suffering that we see in the movies or in a picture or in our own minds or could even imagine. He took something that we have no idea that we can't imagine. He took some kind of punishment for sin that we can't even comprehend. He put it on himself. And that makes it possible for any person to be forgiven of their sin because Jesus will pay for it if we will trust him. Ask him to save you today. To forgive you of your sins. He's calling you to peace with Him. Why would you not want to be at peace with your Maker? He's bought this peace with His blood. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul again wrote to the Philippians. He said, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request, request be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now this peace that God 
gives that surpasses understanding and guards our hearts and minds. I want to tell you this, and this is a subtle thing that our minds can get into, but I, I think this is much more along the right track. This peace is, though it certainly brings about mental and emotional change in us, it's not a mystical or confusing, random, <coughs> without reason change of emotion in our hearts and minds. We treat this passage sometimes like it's some kind of abracadabra magical phrase that when we quote it, without explanation, our stress will go away. It's the peace that passes all understanding. Maybe you've never thought of it that way, but I've certainly heard people that, that look at it that way. And so their goal when they pray, when they start out to pray, they first of all think of their circumstance and they pray for God to give them emotional calm or rest to take away the stress about that circumstance. And I can understand that, but that won't do a whole lot most of the time. It's because the peace that passes understanding, my friends, is how sinners, as vile and as rebellious as we are, could be made right with our God with the blood of the Lamb. That relational peace surpasses all understanding. Why would he trade his life for my sin? Why, Jesus, your perfection for my imperfection? Your purity for my sin? Why would you go to that cross to set me free? The love of Jesus poured out on the cross. The love of our Savior defies logic and reasoning. Why would he do it? Part of the answer is mercy for us, undoubtedly. Part of it is his love for his Father and his desire to please his Father, John 14, 31. But part of the answer, and hear me here, this is important, it's going to help you see Jesus real beautiful. Part of the answer is that this is just a glorious nature of who Jesus Christ is. It's just who he is. It's not a role that he takes on. It's part of his for lack of a better word, DNA. He's not just a peaceful person. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the definition. It's who He is. And He delights to bring peace, not just through His sovereign force upon enemies in the world, but through His life of sacrifice to the point of pouring out Himself on a cross. And loving surgery upon our hearts and minds to bring men back to God. When you pray, the first thing you need to do is to remind yourself of the peace that you have with God. That's the first step. The first step is not to pray for the stress to be gone about this situation. I make this mistake all the time. The first step is to come to the Lord Jesus and come to the Father in humble adoration and in faith and to believe that you have been made right with God. That you are free in Christ. That there is no condemnation for you. And that if, that if God is for you, who can be against you? And my friends, when you get a real emotional grasp of that, a real mental grasp of that, you can take on anything. You can walk through any fire. You can deal with any circumstance. No matter what the stress 
And so emotional calm or peace or tranquility or assurance or confidence, it may follow that. But the first step is to know, to be assured of the relational peace that you have with God. And it's given to you by the Prince of Peace. Closing, I want to say this. Peace with God. I spoke of relational peace. This is an important point as well. Peace with God is not a one-time religious activity that you do and then you try really, really hard to live the rest of your life. There will be hard times and it is not easy. But rather than a religious activity and then lone wolfing it, being by yourself and trying to follow Jesus, what we need to see salvation as is a lifelong relationship of peace with Jesus. He comes to you and He gets you. He rescues you out of that sin. And He stays with you, my friend, throughout your life, through thick and thin, through good times and hard times. He is with you. Bringing peace in your life all the way. One day, you'll taste the ultimate definition of peace. That relationship with Jesus is your life. Boy, it's the most important thing you can have. Amen? Amen. It's the greatest gift that He could ever give you, and He offers it to you freely and completely here today. Are you ready to follow Him? Pray for His peace today. Seek it. Pray to know Him in a relational peace. And praise Him for the peace that He is bringing. I close with Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Hear the word of the Lord.